When were two people ever so sure they were just born to live with each other? We can't fail to find happiness together in this wonderful world of today and tomorrow. Six months after college, I got married, and a year and a half, two years later, I had, had children, and lived a very uh, married life, all right? And when my children got into school and into public school, I became active in, in, in the public schools. I got active in the PTA, I ran the book sale, I became the president and all that, and then met a woman and her family, we became very close. We would spend weekends out at Fire Isle, and men would come out weekends, and we would spend the week together. And in the course of the week when the husbands weren't there, um, I kind of came on to her. And she said no, she'd been there and she'd done that and she didn't want to jeopardize her marriage. And um, I just tucked it back under. And I tucked it back under for probably another 10 years. It's easy to imagine the 1950s and 1960s as a closeted era, a lonely era, an era when women who desired other women suffered silently in heterosexual marriages. You know, my whole family had always been very traditional. Um, I used, I, it was a long marriage too. Um, and I felt that I owed that to my husband and my, I, we did have two children. My mother had soldiered on through difficult times. Her mother <laughs> had soldiered on. I thought that was how one carried the flag for womanhood. You, you had to do these things. Um, but it was bewildering. In the decades after World War II, some married women had passionate sexual and romantic relationships with other women. They found each other in suburban neighborhoods, in urban apartment buildings, at church retreats, and at PTA meetings. Some of these women rightly feared that their husbands would discover their relationship. Yet far more often, husbands turned a blind eye to their wives' affairs, choosing to keep up appearances rather than face the stigma of divorce. In her groundbreaking new book, Her Neighbor's Wife, Sexing History co-host Lauren Gutterman uncovers this hidden history of lesbian desire within marriage. Her Neighbor's Wife shares the stories of hundreds of women who balanced marriage and same-sex desire in the decades following World War II. Each chapter offers a fascinating look at a world in which traditional marriage allowed for lesbian desire to exist and sometimes to thrive. She touched my shoulder with her tongue, lying next to me, remembering the movie and laughing about it. It touched me so gently along my leg, kissed me. It was wonderful. Published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, Her Neighbor's Wife is available for pre-order on www.sexinghistory.com. Her Neighbor's Wife by Lauren Gutterman. Order your copy today. It was only, I think, just prior to prom, uh, during the principal's uh, like pep rally or something, uh, he just, it was an assembly, um, and everybody had to go. It wasn't like mandatory. And one of the things that he was talking about was, I think that was probably the main motivation for this 
you know, assembly, which was that this year we're not going to be having any problems. And he wouldn't even mention Paul by name, but everybody knew what he was talking about. And there was a, got a huge applause and thunderous applause. Um, and I think it was about that point when the applause went on a little too long that I thought, oh, fuck you. I'm going to go to this prom. <laughs> I'm going. And you'll see. That was Aaron Frick. In 1980, Aaron sued his high school in Cumberland, Rhode Island. He wanted the right to attend his senior prom with a male friend as a date. At a time when being out in high school was risky and rare, Aaron was openly gay. His legal challenge paved the way for same-sex couples to attend school dances. I'm Gillian Frank. And I'm Lauren Gutterman. This is Sexing History, a podcast about the ways the history of sexuality shapes our present. For many of us, high school prom was a rite of passage. We dressed up, posed for pictures, and danced the night away. In many ways, prom is a straight institution, the crowning moment of male-female high school romance. Proms can also serve as a kind of practice for courtship and marriage. Think of it this way. The bride carries a bouquet while the female prom date gets a corsage. Grooms, like men at prom, wear boutonnieres. Even the ritual of asking someone out to prom is similar with the promposal. Wait, what's a promposal? A prom proposal, or promposal, is when you ask someone to prom. Some of these promposals are pretty basic, like holding up a cute sign, but some are over-the-top productions that involve dressing up in a costume or asking someone out to prom at a special location. They imitate elaborate wedding proposals. And there's even an MTV show, Promposal, which bills itself as taking the audience on the creative, romantic, and outlandish journey of asking someone to prom. Proms, short for promenades, first became a feature of American life in the late 19th century on college campuses. As more people began attending high school by the 1930s, proms became popular among high school students. By the 1970s, proms had become an all-important ritual, where young people shed their casual blue jeans and dressed up in formal adult attire. Prom is a ritual that shapes the sexual culture of American youth in ways that typically enforce the belief that the only good and normal way to be is a masculine boy who is attracted to feminine girls and vice versa. That's Amanda Lidauer, Associate Professor of History in the Center for the Study of Women, Gender, and Sexuality at Northern Illinois University. By the 1970s and 80s, prom represented a long-standing coming-of-age ritual that marked the sexual maturity of graduating seniors and the expectation of future heterosexual marriage and family formation. Because they are so meaningful for adults and students, proms have become a place for social conflicts to play out. At the heart of many of the conflicts surrounding prom is not just the question, who's it okay to dance with? The question becomes, what kind of person is it okay to bring home to my parents and one day marry? Proms in many ways reflect sexual values they also become places where individuals challenge the sexual values of their communities. In 1979, high school students and adults in a number of cities battled over whether or not it was acceptable for two gay men to dance together at prom. At that time, many schools were hostile to gays and lesbians, firing openly gay teachers and suppressing positive representations of homosexuality in high school newspapers and in health classes. In 1976, when a gay high school student shot and killed himself in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, the note he left behind stated that he could no longer take the harassment he experienced daily in school. 
The following year, when a gay rights group sought to donate two gay affirmative books to a local high school's library in the student's memory, the principal refused to accept them, claiming they were inappropriate. If you were gay in 1979, you probably wouldn't dare to bring a same-sex date to prom if you attended at all. The risk of anti-gay violence was simply too great. In today's episode, we explore how gay youth challenged the expectation that proms were only for straight students. We look at a legal and cultural struggle that gave gays and lesbians the right to openly attend their high school prom with same-sex partners. Aaron Frick's Cumberland, Rhode Island was a typical New England town. Settled in 1635, it was a textile mill town through much of the 19th century and remained blue-collar until World War II. Home to about 27,000 people, and almost exclusively white, by the 1970s, Cumberland had transitioned into a well-off suburb of nearby Providence. What was growing up like, it was, you know, it was kind of solitary. It felt um, like I had gay friends. I had a gay friend who's still my friend. I met in fourth grade, but I didn't know that he was gay and we weren't able to talk about being gay, but um, so uh, it was, you know, kind of a solitary existence, really. One thing, Added upon another, you know, one experience compiled upon another with, you know, have one, my mom telling me that, you know, to, to warning me about gay people and then uh, having a tooth knocked out by a bully, this one guy. Um, and, you know, it just all kind of added up to, to a real kind of feeling of withdrawal. I mean, I withdrew and I felt kind of afraid and gained a lot of weight and uh, just felt like a rock lobster. You know, such a very solitary, just led a solitary existence and kind of scraped by. Just didn't want to, you know, associate too much with anybody, let anybody know that I was gay. There were no gay student unions back then. Cumberland High, where Aaron went to school, was not gay friendly. In his memoir, Aaron described the crushing feeling of isolation he experienced because he was gay. I knew no openly gay people, he said. There was no one to tell me about gay literature. Cumberland had no gay organizations. It wasn't until his junior year that Aaron met and became friends with another openly gay student, Paul Gilbert. It was Paul who began the fight to go to prom. Paul was, um, God, how do you describe exactly from, from scratch? You start from, you know, zero. Uh, let's see. Paul was, you know, at that time he was really my, uh, bridge to, uh, I guess liberation really because, uh, although I was, you know, inwardly out, you know. I mean, inside I knew that I was gay by the time I met him. Uh, I didn't have any connection to any you know, social network, really. Um, and, you know, Paul was that bridge. Uh, Paul had, in fact, been working a, a gay helpline one night. Um, it was so strange that Paul was, you know, this very urban-type kind of personality, I guess he's called, in a very suburban environment. Um, you know, he was only 17, 16, 17. He was uh, very worldly, I guess you'd call it. Um, and so for me, it was great because he had <coughs> gay porn. <laughs> you know, but that was, I'm joking in a way, but that was a big thing. It was like he had you know, magazines with naked men in them, and you also had The Advocate, uh, and it was just like, oh my god, <laughs> this is a, there's a world of gay people, and, and that was, that was what Paul represented, really, he was that bridge to that. 
Like most American high schools, prom was the high point of the social calendar. Most seniors attended, but you had to have a date in order to go to prom, and that date had to be pre-approved by the school before a student could buy a ticket to the dance. So you couldn't go solo to prom? No, the school made it so you had to have a date, and that date needed to be approved by school officials. The conflict over prom at Cumberland High began in 1979 when Paul Gilbert, a 17-year-old junior, tried to get tickets for himself and a male date for junior prom. Paul was open about his sexuality, and he was already a gay rights activist. He had helped start the Rhode Island branch of Dignity, a gay Catholic organization, and he was active in other gay rights groups. The school's principal, Richard Lynch, denied Paul's request and refused to give him dance tickets. He claimed that other students might attack Paul and his date. Paul pushed back and even received a hearing before the school board. When that didn't work, he reached out to the National Gay Task Force for advice. The National Gay Task Force, founded in 1973 and known today as the National LGBTQ Task Force, was an early leader in the fight for gay civil rights. By the time Paul reached out to the organization, it had already helped to push the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from its list of mental disorders, and it had succeeded in getting the National Council of Churches to condemn anti-gay discrimination. The National Gay Task Force agreed to support Paul, and the local ACLU branch offered to help him sue the school. But because Paul was a minor and his parents refused to support him, he was unable to take his fight to the courts. What happened was he was uh, only 17, and uh, he was not able, in order to sue, I guess in any U.S. court, if you're underage, you need your parents' uh, approval, and they would not give him approval. And so it became a kind of a local, um, you know, cause celeb um, with this, his wanting to go to prom. Uh, but then it became this huge failure when you know, he was not able to go when, when he couldn't get his parents' approval. I mean, it was terrible. I mean, he was thrown out of his house. His parents, you know, made him leave. Um, he was on his own. After local and national news outlets covered the story, Paul received threatening phone calls at home. Some students attacked him in school. Principal Lynch had to arrange an escort system as Paul went from one class to the next. On prom night, facing tremendous pressure from his homophobic father, from school officials and from students, Paul stayed home from the dance. A month later, Boston's Committee for Gay Youth invited Paul on his date to what may have been the first ever gay prom. About 100 young men showed up at a downtown Boston gay bar. They danced in front of walls with X-rated murals decoratively covered in blue and orange streamers. One 28-year-old man there told a reporter, this is the prom I never had. On prom night in high school, I sat at home. His date, a 27-year-old construction worker, agreed, saying, At my prom, I tried. I took a girl, did the whole bit. It was the most miserable time of my life. In 1976, Catherine Day, a lesbian student at Girls High in Philadelphia, successfully fought her school's administration for the right to take another woman to the senior prom. Three years later, a gay couple in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, became the first gay male couple to attend a prom together. The principal explained, homosexuals have rights too, you have to accept that. This upsurge of young activism was not coincidental. It was part of a larger story about gay rights activism in the 1970s. Though gays and lesbians had begun organizing decades before, 
In the late 1960s, they began to argue that all gay people should come out of the closet. The Gay Activist Alliance is the largest and most vocal of several homosexual groups. Bruce Veller, a research biologist at the Rockefeller Institute, is president. I think the movement is very much uh, an attempt uh, by those of us who are openly and, and accepting, accepting of our homosexuality at getting people to uh, accept for themselves, get, getting gay people to accept themselves as uh, worthy and, and good human beings uh, who can demand their rights and accept their, their position as equals to everyone else in society, much uh, in parallel to what's been done by other minority uh, groups in the past, blacks, Jews, and others. And the biggest thing that's been accomplished is for uh, a substantial number of people to feel that freedom, to identify themselves as full-fledged and, and worthwhile human beings. And that, that's our ultimate goal. Our legislative programs are designed to aid that, our legal programs and our demands uh, of city, state, and national government. When gays and lesbians came out, they gave up their invisibility. Even as they made themselves vulnerable to attack, they could also fight for basic rights and recognitions and challenge the ways that others portrayed them. Coming out meant that gays and lesbians risked physical violence and insults from their families and friends, but they could also claim a right to exist in public spaces. One important space was high school. There, young gay and lesbian activists didn't just come out. They came out fighting. The media covered these stories extensively, giving young gay rights activists national visibility while also antagonizing their opponents. The Sioux Falls prom even became the butt of a homophobic joke on Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update. Harriet Van Horn, a syndicated advice columnist, fretted that the love that dared not speak its name in Oscar Wilde's time is now being flaunted at a teenage gala in South Dakota, the heartland of America. This is not the senior prom whose gardenia corsages we pressed in our memory books. These young men were fighting for the right to go to prom just as a nationwide backlash was unfolding against recent gay civil rights victories. In our campaign, we, we talk about the danger of the homosexual becoming a role model to our children. And I'm not talking necessarily of child molestation in the physical. I'm talking about the psychological, which is even more detrimental and would have far-reaching effects on our children and on our nation. In 1977, Anita Bryant, a popular singer and spokesperson for Florida Orange Juice, spearheaded the Save Our Children campaign and successfully overturned a local gay rights ordinance in Dade County, Florida. Within two years, Anita Bryant had taken her fight across the country challenging gay rights laws in a number of cities. In 1978, John Briggs, a conservative state legislator from Orange County, California, led a statewide campaign to bar gay men and lesbians from becoming public school teachers. The issue in California is whether school boards should be allowed to fire teachers who are known homosexuals. The courts have ruled they cannot. Boards must prove a teacher's homosexuality adversely affects children and makes him unfit for the classroom. State Senator John Briggs wants to change that. And so I stand virtually alone in California. I have some politicians, we have some organizations, we have a lot of parents, and I think we've got God on our side. Both Bryant and Briggs believed that gays and lesbians use schools to target and to recruit children into homosexuality. 
1980, a year after Paul first tried to go to junior prom at Cumberland High, his friend, 18-year-old Aaron Frick, decided he would try to attend the senior prom. Aaron recalled how he came to this decision. It was all really largely about, I guess, resurrecting Paul's, I don't know about reputation, but, you know, just not letting him, letting the, the you know, the case and the, or the, just, it was just something that needed to be done, you know, it was like, that it was, couldn't just lay there like that. Um, it, it was not just about going to prom, it was about, you know, a, a, a great try, and I mean, not, Paul wasn't even allowed to, to, to try, you know, and so it was about just picking up the ball and, and running with it. Aaron was unable to get tickets to prom. Once again, Principal Lynch refused to allow same-sex couples to attend. He imagined that a gay couple at prom holding hands, dancing, hugging, and kissing would cause other students to become violent and put all the students at risk. Lynch later testified, The chance of physical harm is real. There is no question in my mind at all. We're going to need a ring of protection around them all night. So, to be clear, the principal believed that being openly gay was dangerous because it incited straight students to become violent. Right. Lynch believed that by allowing open displays of affection between men, it would somehow negatively affect the entire school, if not the town. After learning of Aaron's request and Lynch's rejection, John Gaffney, a member of the National Gay Task Force, reached out to Aaron to offer support. He advised Aaron to sue the school in federal district court and offered to cover his legal fees. Gaffney also put Aaron in contact with John Ward, a Boston-based lawyer who handled many gay-related cases. Ward filed a brief on Aaron's behalf. Aaron's classmates reacted badly to his attempts to go to prom with Paul. Not only did Principal Lynch refuse his request, but the student government of Cumberland High School also issued a statement supporting Lynch's decision. One senior complained to the press, they called us the homo school last year, especially at sports events like football or baseball games. Even Aaron's minister, Reverend Gerald Gordon, released a statement opposing Aaron's attendance at prom. He claimed that Aaron was not truly gay, and he framed his request to go to prom as a sign of a broader breakdown in family values. Three days after Aaron filed suit in court, a student punched Aaron in the face at school. He required five stitches under his right eye. Ten days before prom, at a crowded courthouse filled with Cumberland High students, federal judge Raymond Patine heard arguments from Aaron's lawyers and the school's lawyers about whether same-sex couples should have the right to attend prom. During his testimony, Aaron told the judge, I have the right to attend. I want to go for the same reasons any other student wants to go, to socialize and have a good time. Aaron's attorney, John Ward, argued that it would be against Aaron's conscience and the realities of his sexual orientation to invite a member of the opposite sex to prom. He noted that Aaron wanted to attend prom with his male date as a political and educational statement to his classmates that his dignity and value as a human being is unaffected by his sexual orientation. The attorneys claimed that the school was violating Aaron's First and Fourteenth Amendment rights, his right to free expression, and his right to equal protection under the law. Principal Lynch, meanwhile, warned the judge that there could be violence at the dance if Aaron and his date were allowed to attend. Lynch's attorney, James Santaniello, complained that allowing gay couples to attend prom would hurt other students' reputations. He told the judge that since Paul Gilbert had asked to go to prom, 
many Cumberland High School students had been subjected to the taunting jeers of students from other schools and called fags. But Santaniello also mocked Aaron repeatedly during his cross-examination, asking, would either you or Paul Gilbert wear a corsage? And, I mean, that was really an important, important thing for the, for the uh, defense strategy. <laughs> a man wearing a corsage is, you know, that's just, uh, I don't know, hideous or that's uh, absurd or, you know, they can't be serious about this. <laughs> He's wearing a corsage. Um, and they, they kept asking me, are you going to wear a corsage? And I was like, I wouldn't say yes or no. I was like, maybe if I want to, I will. <laughs> do, you, do you think they were trying to ask who is going to be the boy and who is going to be the girl? Yeah, I think so. Nothing mentioned it. That's probably just what they were driving at. Two days before prom, on May 28, 1980, Judge Raymond Patin issued his decision in favor of Aaron Frick, allowing him to go to the dance. And Aaron decided to take his friend Paul as his date. Patin's verdict focused on First Amendment issues. He explained that the mere act of going to the dance with another man made a political statement, and that that statement was protected by the First Amendment. Patin further ruled that caving into anti-gay students gave them a heckler's veto. The First Amendment, he wrote, does not tolerate mob rule by unruly schoolchildren. So Patin's decision underscored what Aaron and Paul already knew, that the act of same-sex dancing had political content, that it was a form of political speech, and that it was protected. Patin's ruling in Frick v. Lynch made national news, but reactions were divided. The Providence Journal Bulletin, Rhode Island's largest newspaper, applauded the decision. Providence's Roman Catholic bishop described it as morally objectionable because it promoted homosexuality to impressionable young people. Still, the bishop encouraged students to abstain from violence. Do not answer evil with evil, he said. Nearly a year after Paul Gilbert began fighting for his right to take another man to prom, he and Aaron were finally able to attend Cumberland High School's prom together. Dozens of reporters lined up outside the dance, six uniformed police officers monitored the event, and students stared at Aaron and Paul as they danced, calling them names. Aaron and Paul were forced to sit at a table with faculty members, and at one point, Principal Lynch asked the boys to stop dancing with each other. The couple had slow danced to Bob Seger's We've Got Tonight, and during that dance, Aaron lay his head on Paul's shoulder. The pair remained at prom for nearly four hours, and the violent outbursts Lynch had warned about did not occur. However, calls of queer and faggot followed them as Principal Lynch escorted the pair out to a waiting car. But for Aaron, the most memorable moment that night occurred when he, Paul, and their peers lost themselves dancing to the B-52's hit Rock Lobster, which Aaron loved. Here's Aaron reading from his memoir. Paul and I began dancing freestyle. Everyone else was still staring at us. But by the end of the first stanza, several couples had also begun dancing. The song has a contagious enthusiasm to it, and with each bar, more dancers came onto the floor. I doubt that any two people were dancing with the same movements. The dancing was an expression of individuality, and no one felt bad about being different. Everyone was free to be themselves. A quarter of the way into the song, 30 people were on the dance floor. Down, 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 commanded the lyrics. Everyone on the dance floor sank to their knees and crouched on the ground. Dozens of intertwining bodies crouched on their knees as if praying. 
We were all one. We shared a unity of pure love while we danced our asses off. Everyone jumped to their feet again and resumed dancing. Many more kids had joined us. Uh, there must have been 60 or 80 people on the dance floor now. Down, 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 cried Beatrice again, and we all went down. The feeling of unity among us permeated the air again. Now there were at least 100 people on the dance floor. The tempo became more frenetic and everyone danced faster. Let's rock, bellowed from the speakers, and to my surprise, when I looked up, several other guys were dancing with other, each other, and girls were dancing with girls. Everybody's rocking. Everybody's fruiting. Maybe they were doing it to mock me and Paul. Maybe they were doing it because they wanted to. Maybe one was an excuse for the other. I didn't know, and I didn't care. It was fun. Everyone was together. I danced with girls. I danced with guys. I danced with the entire group. Then the music stopped. Two high school boys dancing together made gay youth visible at a moment when many Americans believed that nobody should grow up to be gay. Their message, broadcast far and wide by a national media, reached queer kids across the country. And that's a big part of what this whole fight over prom was about. The right of gay kids to have fun like their straight peers, to be themselves, shamelessly, without fear, on the dance floor, mingling with friends, unconcerned about appearance or sexuality. Paul and Aaron's attempts to dance together at prom challenged the formal and implicit rules of their school, their town, and their society, all of which said homosexuality was evil and unwelcome. For Principal Lynch and all of the students and adults who feared seeing two men together, prom was an opportunity to maintain the barriers that defined who you can dance with and who you can be with. Today, throughout the United States, administrators, parents, and students continue to fight over proms. Transgender students, mixed-race dances, same-sex couples, dress codes, dance styles, and drinking have all made headlines in recent years. Just this past May in Buffalo, New York, an 18-year-old junior sued his high school principal for refusing to allow same-sex couples to purchase tickets to prom and for denying students' requests to form a gay-straight alliance. These battles over youth behavior continue to reflect modern fault lines over race, gender, and sexuality. Sexing History is produced by Rebecca Davis, Sonia Lee Ganawi, Devin McGee and much more, Lauren Gutterman, and me, Gil Frank. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Sexing History. Visit us at sexinghistory.com for a picture of Aaron and Paul and a link to Aaron's memoir about his fight to go to prom. Sincere gratitude to Amanda Litauer for spending time with us. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from Alan Zwickler of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation. Created in honor of the journalist, filmmaker, poet, and gay activist Phil Zwickler, the foundation seeks to promote human rights, education, health, and the arts, specifically with respect to the gay and lesbian community, and generally with regard to those individuals and groups who need assistance to survive and be heard. Visit them at pzfoundation.org. I'm Lauren Gutterman. I'm Gillian Frank. This is Sexing History.